I first saw what my assignment would be, you know, Pastor Stan plans his sermons out uh, way in advance, and I think that's wise. Um, it, it just fell that I would, I would receive this assignment, and when I saw it, it said Judas, and I, and I thought, wow, thanks. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, that's going to be inspiring. <clears throat> um, so, but as I, as I got into the Scriptures and read the story and, and kind of freshened up on what was going on there, the Lord began to speak, of course, and, and I was just excited. Um, you know, we get to be blessed by his bummer. Um, Judas, you know, he, he made a terrible mistake. He didn't repent, and we're going to look at that, but we get to be blessed by it. Um, turn first in your Bibles to, uh, or your devices, <clears throat> to John chapter 1, verse 29. And it says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to forgive sin. Here's John the Baptist, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to forgive our sin. Why did he say the Lamb of God? Well, first of all, this helps us understand the background of Judas' story because it was taking place during the feast of the Passover. And if you remember what the Passover feast was all about, it was an annual celebration, and it takes us back to the story of Moses as he's going to Pharaoh to get all up in his jersey because he was playing for the other team, right? And saying, let my people go. And one of the things that God told him to tell Pharaoh is, if you don't let my people go, the death angel is going to come across Egypt and he's going to take the life of every firstborn. Well, the people of Israel had already been told that if you would sacrifice or slay the blood of a pure lamb and paint the blood over the doorpost, that would be a sign for the death, the death angel, uh, and he would pass over that household and that firstborn would be saved. So shed blood has always been a symbol of salvation, as atonement for sin and a leading up to salvation. And so it's appropriate that John said, Behold the Lamb of God. There goes Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. And so that's where we pick up this story. It's during this annual feast of the Passover while they're remembering the Passover Lamb. So there are three powerful lessons that we're going to learn from this story. And I'm actually going to. Uh, give you kind of an aerial view of where I'm going. And so even if you want to, just pick out, pull out your note sheets out of your bulletin, if you're going to take notes for you students of the Scriptures, and, and go ahead and fill in these main points. Number one is the sovereignty of God. And you guys don't have to jump forward with the PowerPoint. I'm just going to do this real quick. The, we're going to look at, this is a story of the sovereignty of God. That means who's in charge. That's what sovereignty means. Who's in charge? God is in charge. We're going to look at Repentance, and I'm going to explain to you what repentance is, if that's kind of a harsh word or a new word for you. Um, and that simply means a change of direction and a change of mind, and we're going to look at that. And the third thing is worship, okay? Um, a worshipful response. So God's sovereignty, uh, it's a story of repentance, and it's a story of worship. Well, what I just said to you is really the journey, those three things is the journey that every man and woman, 
child, anyone who comes into a relationship with God makes that journey. First, you say, who's in charge? I'm not in charge. God's in charge. And your response to that is, okay, I'm a sinner, and I need to change my my ways need to change into God's ways, and my mind need to change, needs to change into God's mind. What, is, what are His thoughts on this? And then my response is worship, because once I realize what He's done in order for my sin to be overcome and my life to be changed, worship is the appropriate response, okay? So those are the three things that we're going to look at. We're going to see those things in this story. So uh, the good news is, that today is the day of salvation. You've heard that uh, said before. It's a passage from the Scriptures, and I apologize, I don't have the address for you, but today is a day of salvation. But in order for today to be a day of salvation, it has to be a day of repentance, because repentance precedes salvation. So the good news is, is today is a day of repentance for us, We're going to take personal inventory, we're going to examine our lives, and we're going to respond with a repentant heart to God, and then we're going to worship Him. And you're going to also see that repentance is not just an event that occurred at one point because of a sin. Repentance is a posture, it's a lifestyle, it's it's, it's how we walk, it's where we go. it's It's our attitude before God. We live in a state of repentance. So, with those things in mind, I want to read you this story, and it might seem a little bit long, but it's because I'm going to read you a story, so it's going to be, look like more than just one passage that we put up on the Scriptures. And also what I've done is I've, taking, I've taken the, uh, a collection of details from two Gospels, Matthew and John, because they both share different details, and I've kind of sandwiched them together so it reads as one story, Okay. So, beginning with Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 16, and then we'll look at John chapter 12 and also John chapter 18. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, He said to His disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill Him. And in quotes, but not during the feast, they said. Or there may be a riot among the people. Let me just pause there. Jesus said two days and then Passover, I'm going to be arrested. It's my time. The priests who were plotting to kill Him said, okay, but not during the Passover. Um, Jesus wasn't talking to them. Jesus is over here telling His disciples, hey, I, it, it's my time. And then over here, the, the priests are meeting in private, and they happen to say, not during the Passover, because be, there could be a riot. So, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Is it going to be during the Passover or not? Verse 7, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head. And then in John 12, verse 3, it says, she poured it on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
But when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. And then from John 12, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And then, kind of in parentheses, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins, and then from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. John chapter 18, verses 2 to 12 says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees, and they were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them, by the way, and when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he. Jesus answered, and if you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. An interesting contrast here. While Mary was anointing Jesus for burial in an act of worship, Judas was bartering for Jesus' burial. So here's, here's what's going on. And, and your first point is, this is a story about God's sovereignty. Who's in charge? Everybody say that together out loud. Ready? Who's in charge? All right, let's try that again. Ready? Who's in charge? So, uh, this kind of cracks me up. And I know it's kind of a tragic story. Um, it ends in Judas hanging himself. But meanwhile, Jesus go to, goes to great lengths to make it very clear in 
no uncertain terms that he's in charge. So first, as we just read, he says, Passover's in two days. My time's come, I'm going to be arrested. The priests say to themselves, let's not do this during the Passover because it'll cause a riot. So, when's this going to happen? How many think it's going to happen on the Passover when Jesus said it would happen, right? Because He's in charge. So, He's praying in the garden on the Passover, the day of the Passover feast, in the Garden of Gethsemane with two other disciples. And because He knows what's going to happen, as we just read, and He knows it's His time, He wakes the other two disciples up. He told them to pray, but they fell asleep. Remember? Have you ever done that, falling asleep while you're praying? So He says, wake up, guys. The mob's coming. Now, it's my opinion that He didn't have binoculars, um, and He was kind of up on a perch watching in fear and, and, and uh, just unrest that this is going to happen. No, he says, uh, hey guys, wake up, it's my time. And so then he walks over here and he waits. And the two other disciples, they follow him and they're waiting and they're probably thinking, no, what, what are we waiting for? I mean, how does he know they're, they're coming? So then the mob comes and Jesus initiates this. He says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am He. Whew. They all fall to the ground. And then He says, get up. So they get up, and He says, who would you say you were looking for? Now, if I'm those guys, I'm, my response is like, I mean, we read this in the storyline, but it was probably more like, um, Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, well, I already told you, I'm He. <laughs> right? And then, this is what I picture Jesus doing. He's already told you, I'm He. Judas? One of the passages says, Judas, do what you came for. One of the other uh, uh, gospels says that Judas had plotted with the high priest, here's the plan. You'll know who it is that is Jesus, the one you're going to arrest, because I'll go and kiss him on the cheek. That way you'll know that's the guy you're going to arrest. Well, Jesus, again, he's going to great lengths to demonstrate who's in charge here, the sovereignty of God. This is his plan all along. So before Judas could even do that, he says, hey, Judas, do what you came for. Wow. Jesus is in charge. He's even in charge of his own arrest. The time, the day, the way that it will occur were all on his terms. And this is really comforting to me because it tells me that there is nothing that God doesn't attend. The good, the bad, the ugly, the worse, the discouraging, the encouraging, the celebrations, the overcoming, the miracles. He attends it all. He's the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. 
He's the I am. There isn't anything that he doesn't attend. And you say, well, why is it, why is it so bad then, the thing that I'm going through? Because you're either going through something very difficult right now, or you're going to. Because, you know, so we all have that in common, because this isn't heaven, and so we either have gone through something that's really difficult, um, we're, we're, we're not right now, or we're going to. We, everybody fits somewhere in there. God attends all of it, and even the difficult things, and all of us can say, in fact, even as I speak these words in your minds, I know what you're going to be thinking, and I wish that everybody else who's not going through, or excuse me, who is going through something difficult right now could hear you say this in your minds. So as I say God attends everything, you go, yeah. And I wish those of you, as I said, who, who weren't going through something, uh, excuse me, who are going through something difficult right now could hear what we're thinking in our minds. Yeah, he attended that. Because it was 1985 or 1997 or 1998 or, or 2005 or 2011, if it, if it weren't for God and the way that he attended that difficult thing in my life, I would not be me where I am today, more mature, wiser, um, uh, made over, made new, transformed miraculously, it wouldn't, if it weren't for the way that God attended that, because the Scripture says God is at work in all things for the good of those who are in Christ. And so you know that there's something here, there's something about you that is valuable because God attended that. And you graduated. And because you graduated, just as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, you will therefore comfort others with the comfort you've received from God. That's what it's about. There isn't anything that God doesn't attend. John chapter 13, verses 1 to 3 says, It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that His time had come for Him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He now showed them the full extent of His love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power, all things under His power, and that He had come from God and was returning to God. John chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, we see, after Jesus said this, He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you, for you granted Him authority. Who's in charge? You granted Him authority over all people, that He might give eternal life to all those who you've given Him. So number one in our journey is recognizing who's in charge. Jesus is. This leads us to repentance. What is that? First of all, let me show you where it occurs and why it occurs. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 9, we see this principle that we refer to as the law of the harvest. It's kind of like the law of gravity. It's just, it's just this thing that's in place. Um, I, I, I say this all the time. You, you've heard me use this illustration. Uh, you know, you can jump out of a parachute. A hunt, uh, excuse me, jump out of a, an airplane. You, you don't want to jump out of a parachute, uh, but you can you can jump out of an airplane a hundred times without a parachute, and you'll never be disappointed. Right? 
It's the law of gravity. You should expect what's going to happen. You can bet your life on it. You can bet your death on the fact that the law of gravity will be in place. You're going to hit the ground a hundred times. You're going to die. You can bet, and, and the same way, we can bet our lives on this reality of the law of the harvest. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. Let's look at it. Galatians 6, 7 to 9, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Man, don't give up doing good. Don't give up saying no. Don't give up putting off and pushing back, setting aside the things that would otherwise result in temptation. Don't give up in the good work of resisting temptation. Don't grow weary in that. It seems there were matters of Judas' heart that were due for repentance long before he went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? It seems that Judas was unwilling to submit to Christ and worship Him because it would mean surrendering to greed, surrendering dishonesty or thievery. These, among other things, disable our worship. Judas is always known as the traitor. It's interesting that when things unravel, the crop comes up, what you've sown you're reaping. That's kind of the thing that you get identified as, even, even if it's not by others, but in your own mind, I'm a… Well, oftentimes, it's, it's really not that. It was the other things that led up to that. Why don't we say, instead of saying Judas was a traitor, why don't we say, Judas, he's the guy that was a known thief, a, a known liar. He was greedy. He was ambitious. It was his plan, his plot to become the secretary of the treasury of all of Rome. Right? Because that's why he was following Jesus. He was in charge of the money bags, and, and everybody knew that Jesus, Jesus has already been saying that he's going to establish a kingdom, the kingdom of God is at hand. But Judas was assuming, like many who crucified Jesus, that, they were, that Jesus was going to step, uh, establish an earthly kingdom. Jesus had a much bigger plan than that, didn't He? An eternal kingdom, heaven and earth, all authority under His name. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 10, describe two kinds of repentance. It's referred to as godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Let's contrast those so that we understand what it is that we want to do. Paul says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet, I'm now happy. 
not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. So Paul's writing to them about some things, telling them to examine their hearts, and, and there's some things that are sin, and it's ongoing, they need to repent. And he said, I, I know it made you feel sorry, but he said, be, because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow, write it down, brings repentance that leads to salvation, leaves no regret, in other words. And worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Interesting. Godly sorrow leads to repentance that leads to salvation. There's a progression. And this salvation means not only eternally, but presently. Not only my eternal destiny, but my daily destiny. It speaks the full orb of God's blessing. It saves me not only to be born again eternally, eternally, a fresh start, a new beginning, but it saves me from old bondages, healed from old hurts, set free from those things that are strangling me spiritually every day, that I would be blessed and saved in all aspects of my life, mentally, relationally, emotionally. That's salvation. Every day. What brings about this kind of salvation that you'll never regret saying, man, I followed Jesus, I repented of my sin to Him, not to myself? Repentance which brings salvation. Hey, anyone who has truly repented has truly been blessed by this. This is why throughout history mankind has been called to repentance so that godly sorrow can do its work. Godly sorrow always leads to repentance. And that is the key. It is absolutely essential, non-negotiable, undeniable principle of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, God has put into the tapestry of His plan that we would first recognize who's in charge, and then we would repent of our sin. God put men on the scene to constantly say, hey, here's the key. In Genesis, Noah didn't say, Something good is about to happen. Right? He wasn't singing Sunday school songs. He was saying, hey, repent. God's going to destroy the earth. Well, Amos, confronted by the high priest, it wasn't because he was saying, I'm okay, you're okay. His message was, there is sin. There are things that need to be changed. Rend your heart. Get right. When Daniel was in the lion's den, it wasn't because he was preaching inch by inch, everything's a cinch. You can do it. His message was, meanie, meanie, tekel, you farson. In other words, you have been weighed in the balances and have been found lacking. You thought that line came from one of your favorite movies, right? Jeremiah in the dungeon, not because he was preaching, the me I see is the me I will be. He hadn't been to one of Tony's seminars. That wasn't his message. He was calling a nation to repent, and it didn't pay well. John the Baptist was beheaded, not because he was preaching, smile, God loves you. 
No, he was telling folks to turn away from their wicked stuff and repent. His message was, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus himself, because John the Baptist came before Jesus telling everybody that Jesus would come, he then, during his very first message, would confirm John's message by saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of God is among you. Peter, what must we do to be saved, they asked him during his first sermon. Repent and be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And finally, in Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses, it has been prophesied, we see written in the Apostle John's vision, recorded the last book in your Bible called Revelation. He has this vision about two prophets that would come during the tribulation to preach a message of repentance, that there would be one final opportunity for hearts to be changed and lives to be saved. Not because they were preaching God is in heaven and everything on earth is okay. No. They'll be calling people to repent. Throughout the Scriptures, from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, it's the plan. It's the key to unlocking the blessing of salvation. You say, okay, so what is repentance exactly? I kind of get a picture of it. Well, let's be specific. It's two things. It's both a change in direction and a change of mind. I'm going this way. I'm doing these things. The crop comes up because I'm sowing weeds. I don't want to experience that crop. So I say, okay, I'm going to go this way. Now, keep in mind, the Holy Spirit is counseling this whole thing, right? Because He's a revealer of truth and a counselor and a comforter. And so He's counseling me, no, Doug. So I'm going to go this way. Well, that's only part of it. That's a change in direction. Then there's a change of my mind where I listen to the counsel of the Holy Spirit. He says, Doug, you're thinking this way. And I say, okay, well, Lord, what do you think? What are your thoughts on this? What what does your Scripture say about this? And then, of course, the proper response would be, oh, okay, I'm going to think that way now. Because I I was doing this over here thinking it's okay, no problem, no, you know, I'm not, it's private anyway, nobody really, I'm not hurting anybody. And the Holy Spirit says, well, that's not what God says about it. Look at this uh, clip, and as, as it rolls, listen carefully because the font's kind of small, and watch at the end, there's no break in the film, it just reverses. I will live my life according to these beliefs. God does not exist. It's just foolish to think that there is an all-knowing God with a cosmic plan. That an all-powerful God brings purpose to the pain and in the world is a comforting thought. However, it is only wishful thinking. People can do as they please without eternal consequences. The idea that I am deserving of hell because of sin is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. The more you have, the happier you will be. Our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. 
In a world with no God, there's freedom to be who I want to be. But with God, life is an endless cycle of guilt and shame. Without God, everything is fine. It is ridiculous to think I am lost and in need of saving. And that's how I felt before Christ opened my eyes, changed my heart, and reversed my thinking. I am lost and in need of saving. It is ridiculous to think everything is fine without God. Life is an endless cycle of guilt and shame. But with God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. In a world with no God, our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. The more you have, the happier you will be is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. Because of sin, I am deserving of hell. The idea that people can do as they please without eternal consequences is only wishful thinking. It is a comforting thought, however, that an all-powerful God brings purpose to the pain and suffering in the world, that there is an all-knowing God with a cosmic plan. It's foolish to think God does not exist. I will live my life according to these beliefs. Amazing, isn't it? Just a changed mind. Repentance is not just not doing the sin anymore, because if we don't submit our minds to Christ and His view of the matter and say, yes, I agree, Lord, then we'll just come back to that sin because our mind hasn't changed. I think this is best illustrated um, by paralleling Judas with one other guy. His name's Peter. So, both who initially chose to follow Jesus, interestingly, Matthew 27 verses 3 to 5 says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. There you go. And he returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, said Peter, or excuse me, said Judas. Wow. So he knew he had sinned. For I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility, not our problem, yours in other words. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. He deals with his guilt the way many of us do, hung up by it. It's an interesting parallel. Judas was hung up in his guilt, yet Peter was held up in glory. What is the difference? Jesus called them both devils. Judas was... One of you is a devil, Jesus said. And Peter said, he said, get thee behind me, Satan. Remember when he was going to wash Peter's feet? And Peter said, no, if anybody's going to wash anybody's feet, I'm going to wash your feet. And he said, Peter, I'm not going to have anything to do with you unless you let me do this. So what was the difference? Repentance. One repented to himself, worldly sorrow. The other repented to God. Godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. One continued to sin and returned to it perpetually. Peter, we'll see, took his coat out of the boat. Let's look at it. John 2, verse 
uh, 21 verse 7, then the disciples who Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. Take your coat out of the boat. Why did he do that? Why didn't he just leave his coat in the boat? This wasn't when, when Peter walked on the water, by the way. This was when Jesus was showing up on the beach to cook him breakfast and re, reinstate his relationship with Peter, who had denied him three times. But he knew Peter's heart, and he would repent. And he asked Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, three times. And then he went to feeding his sheep, following Jesus. He didn't go back to the boat where he'd left his coat. Take your coat out of the boat. Delete her number out of your contacts. Empty the cupboard of the alcohol. Cancel the subscription. Get password protection. It works. Judas was hung up in guilt, and Peter was held up in glory. Are you hung up? Am I hung up? Is there sin, even as a follower of Jesus, is there sin that is crippling my worship? Finally, this is an an example of worship, a story of worship. Not just the sovereignty of God, the story of repentance, but finally, what follows repentance is worship. What you value gets your attention. And the word there is worship. You've, used, you've heard that term used before, and I like that term because that's what worship is. It, it's a reflection of what you value. What gets your time? What gets your attention, your priority? One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? As we read earlier, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor. What had his attention was the money. And what he was hung up on already before he hung himself was greed and ambition. Mary gave her best because she valued her Lord the most. Secondly, it's mine to give. Not only is worship what you value and get your attention, it's mine to give. It was Mary's box, alabaster box. It wasn't theirs. Who, what business was it of them? What right did they have to criticize how she was worshiping and what she was giving up? It was one of five presents sent by Cambyses to the king of Ethiopia. It's recorded in Herodotus chapter 3 verse 20. It was a it's a history book written in the early uh, in 400 BC. That's what she brought. What would be given to a king? Worshiping Jesus, finally, it makes you smell like him. Even the whole room, the scripture says. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal process, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those 
who are perishing. You say, man, folks are perishing. I want to be a better witness for Christ. Okay. The way that we do that is to worship Jesus. It makes us smell like Him. Why was it that Mary didn't just pour the oil over His head, as Matthew recorded, but John added the detail that she also poured it over His feet, and she didn't stop there. Picture this. She then gets down and wipes the oil on Jesus' feet with her hair. I know it's hard for you to imagine that. <laughs> Why? Well, if you're, if you're her and you come in with this gift and, and, it's, and it's, a, it's an act of worship to prepare Him for His burial, and you're anointing Him with oil, and it was a tradition, and so He's got this incredible odor on Him now, and you're thinking, Jesus? Fragrance? Me, fragrance. Me and Jesus. We smell the same now. That was her worship. And the same is for us. And it, and it actually permeated the whole room. If you want to permeate your workplace, it's not what you do, how you do that. It's who you worship and who you become and the effect that that has on the people around you. The whole room smelt like them. I'd like for you to bow your heads as I read this last passage, Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 2. Just close your eyes and listen to this. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. This theme of fragrance is all throughout the Bible, and it's about worship. Would you stand with me now as Kenny prepares to lead us in worship? We're going we're gonna to journey this together today, all of us, acknowledging who's in charge. We're going to respond with repentance as we examine our hearts, and we're going to do that as we worship. And so, as we come together as a worshipful response, even, even if there's no room, just move someplace different than where you are. Even if it's into the aisle, I'm going to move from this place just as an act of worship. As we come, know that when you come, the Holy Spirit is going to put those things on your heart that are hindering your worship. It's just a time to lay it at His feet in repentance, okay? I want to read one last passage to you because David gets it. Psalm 86, verses 4 to 13. This is a song that he wrote. It's a worship song similar to what we're going to sing as we move out. You are forgiving and good, O Lord. Abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you, for you will answer me. Among the gods, 
there is none like you. Oh, Lord, no deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you. Oh, Lord, they will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name, and I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name, for great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths of worship. You see how repentance and worship go together? Let's worship Him.